Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Trey Bowles to the show. Trey Bowles is co-founder and executive chairman of the Dallas Entrepreneur Center, where he recently stepped out of his role as CEO. Bowles co-founded and launched the Dallas Innovation Alliance, a public partnership to develop a smart cities initiative for the city of Dallas. Trey also launched an entrepreneurship department at SMU in the Meadows School of Arts, where he still serves as an adjunct professor. Trey, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Trey, thank you for being on. Trey, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well, I think as I, as I thought about that question, um, the first thing that came to my mind, which is usually what I like to go with, is that I have the greatest job in the world. And it's because I get up and do whatever I want all day long. And so does that mean I don't work? Does that mean I go watch, eat bonbons and, and go to movies? No. What it means is I've been able to find um, projects and, and companies and people to work with that make me feel like what I do all day long isn't work. And so being able to look at something from that perspective and realize that any given point during the day, and that doesn't mean all days are great. In fact, as an entrepreneur, more days are bad um, in terms of outcomes than good. I mean, there's many days I go home where I'm like, wow, more bad stuff happened today than good. However, um, I loved it. I loved the people I got to meet with. I loved the things I got to learn. I got to, I loved the idea of being creative and coming up with solutions and trying to implement things like that, that all of that I loved. And that makes me feel inspired and it makes me feel um, like my life has purpose and meaning. And it makes me feel like I get to help support other people and their visions and dreams um, which is which is important and a little bit campy, but the idea is every day um, I'm in charge of my own destiny, and a lot of times that means I'm working eighty hours a week, so I don't have to work forty hours a week for somebody else. But what I'm doing is something that makes me feel um, like that those t- that time and those hours are are. are doing things well. And that also doesn't mean I'm everything I do works. It doesn't mean that all my businesses succeed or all my endeavors um, are achieved. It just means I get to feel like um, wherever I am is where I'm supposed to be. And that a good or bad or ugly, um, I'm doing something I'm, I'm excited about. Well, that is beautiful. And it leads into my next question. If you could share a little bit about your current endeavor or company, I'd really appreciate it. So, yes. And as you know, Raj, since we've been friends for a while, um, my endeavors are a little bit, uh, um, they're, they're a little bit vast, right? I, I've done, in the last know, seven or eight years, I've built four different companies, all nonprofit companies, and then a entrepreneurship department at SMU. And um, I say that to say, look, it wasn't that I was unfocused. It wasn't that I didn't want to accomplish um, one specific thing. It was that there was so many, so much opportunity and so much need around my overarching goal and focus that it took four different nonprofits in order to make that happen. And so um, to talk about what I'm doing now, I need to talk a little bit about what I have been doing. Um, back in 2011, um, I was asked by SMU to launch an entrepreneurship department in their Meadows School. 
um, which I thought, oh, cool. I've never taught college before. I'll go figure out how to do that. And I called a bunch of professors around the country, asked them how to teach college. They told me and I went and did it. So it was a fun project to do that. I also launched a uh, nonprofit with the mayor of Dallas, which was a leadership development organization, um, which I think is about to go into its ninth year. And it's just been awesome. We have over 250 amazing young professionals that have been through this program that are out changing the world in our, in the city of Dallas around some of them are city council members. Some of them have run for mayor. Lots of them have roles as DISD heads. I mean, just, just exceptionally amazing people. I joke all the time that I'm really glad that I started it because there's no way in the world I would have gotten into it. Um, and so I, so I did that for a while and then I had this hypothesis and this really sort of tears into what, what I'm going to be doing now and, and next is I believe that Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth, the North Texas region um, was top five or six most entrepreneurial or innovative areas in the country. I also believed that no one outside of Dallas knew nor cared. And so the, so the question was, look, there's all the statistics, all this data that supports this claim. It's not like I have to convince somebody that there's the data that's there, but I do have to convince people to look at the data and, and give it credence and give it credibility and give it, um, give it a voice. And so um, my thesis was in order to get the eyes of the world to, to, to look at North Texas and focus on what was, what was going on here, we needed to build something big and innovative the likes that few cities in the country were doing. However, if uh, what we were doing was bringing the eyes of the world on on Dallas, but we couldn't, we didn't know where the entrepreneurs and innovators innovators were. Then what we were doing was really just a a, a, a splash in a bucket, and it wasn't going to last because that big innovative thing wasn't going to reveal anything. And so that's why we created an organization called the Dallas Entrepreneur Center. Um, now it's called the DEC Network, and the idea of that organization was to aggregate innovators and entrepreneurs. Um, and then teach aspiring entrepreneurs how to start building grow businesses. And so through that, we built different location, physical locations all across North Texas, programs, education, mentorship solutions, just to really help entrepreneurs be successful. Um, after that, I went back to, well, what's that big innovative idea that's going to bring the eyes of the world here? And we believed it was a smart city strategy. And the way we define it, everybody has a definition. The way we define smart cities is the concept of leveraging infrastructure, technology, and data um, to help build communities, economic development, and resource efficiencies to improve the overall quality of life for um, a, an area. And, and by, by quality of life, that means not just for some of the citizens, but all of the, all of the citizens, which means you have to take a very holistic approach to the programs and the um, and the projects you release because um, it's not a one size fits all solution. There's different neighborhoods, different needs, different um, different opportunities. But we wanted to take a people centered focus and a solutions driven focus. So it wasn't about man, how do we convince a city that they need new lights, but rather how does a new lighting system support an overall um, focus on public safety or transportation or healthcare or um, smart citizens, whatever it may be. Um, and so we went to the city and convinced them to let us develop a public-private partnership with them to run a project that would allow us to move much more quickly than a city had because we didn't have the standard procurement rules and laws that cities had to deal with. So we went out, um, we launched this at the White House, President Obama, 
and uh, came up with an idea, built it out, got raised the money and built it and launched it in 10 months, which made it the fastest to market smart cities project on the planet, which, which was simply because we didn't have, we had two people that were making the decisions, not entire cities or procurement staffs. That being said, we built that out and we just learned an, um, an unbelievable amount about the process of building a smart city. And what we realized was there really wasn't that many people in the country that had implemented a smart city strategy, that had gone through the process of understanding how do you have these different um, vendors integrate with each other? How is data collected? How is that data managed? How is it um How's it monetized? Who's, who owns it? What sorts of privacy documents need to be developed around that? How do you how do you store that data? And most importantly, how do you leverage that data to make better decisions for the future of the of the city? So, um, what what we're doing now is we just launched a for profit version of that initiative, which allows us to work um, with a broader set of organizations and allows us to work. Um, all across the world. The Dallas Innovation Alliance, which was that public-private partnership, was really focused on trying to help develop a case study for the city of Dallas, um, particularly so they could develop their overarching strategy for everything. The new company, which we call NO City Partners, um, NO as in innovation, I-N-N-O, City um, Partners, is is is, is in the process of becoming a certified women-owned business um, with my business partner, Jen Sanders, to be- build these strategies, help our clients um, reach uh, their goals. And our clients are made up by four potential targets. Uh, we work with mun- municipalities, obviously. We work with educational institutions, federal governments, and then residential and commercial real estate developers. So there's a lot to unpack there. I want to go back to your previous three endeavors that you mentioned. And you know, I see this common theme, and like you mentioned at the top of the recording, you and I have known each other for a few years now, 2014, when we first met at the deck. I'm a big fan of the deck. I've always been, loved the deck. I love the energy you put together there. But, you know, over the conversations that we've had in the past, and even this conversation, this common thread about giving back, you know, almost altruistic, philanthropic, you know, what drives you? Where, where does that come from? Well, I think it comes from the idea that, you know, and I say this to people a lot, but if you can marry what you're passionate about and what you're good at together, you're going to enjoy whatever you're doing. And realistically, and as you know, um, as you start to you know get out, out of your 20s, you start to realize that, hmm, maybe money isn't the only thing that's going to take to make me happy. Maybe there's other things. Maybe there's personal fulfillment, right? Maybe there's family. Maybe there's, you know, goals that you set, right? Maybe there's um, a faith that drives you, whatever that may be um, that is there. And I think what I realized for myself pretty young, because I I was fortunate enough to just fall into entrepreneurship in college and early on in my career had some really cool, fun projects I got to work on just by luck, being in the right place at the right time. And I realized, man, so much more, um, important to me is do I enjoy and f- by, feel, feel fulfilled by what I'm doing um, versus whether or not I make a bunch of money? Because my argument is that you cannot control the outcome of a business or of a project, but you can control your contribution to the process. And so for me, you know, my goal 
is to control my contribution to any process. And as a result, I want that process to be something that benefits not simply me. If it's just going to make me money, especially at someone else's expense, I'm not interested in that. But if I can develop a, a project, a company, an environment where you know, I'm getting to accomplish my, my goals and my vision, and really for me that success, and we, a lot of people define success different ways, for me success is, is derived simply by making one person happy. One person has to believe that I'm successful for me to feel successful, and that's myself. And that a lot of that is driven by what vision do I have? What goals do I want to achieve? And I do that. I don't care whether you think it's important or not. I mean, what kind of, you know, what kind of imbecile launches four nonprofits in the prime time of their money-making career, right? Like, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. But that's what I was passionate about. That's what my vision was. Um, and then I believed in order to accomplish that, especially in the nonprofit space, but in order to accomplish that, um, you really have, you really have the opportunity to be missionally focused, philanthropic focused, um, on building something that it, that creates a rising tide, um, that raises all ships. And so for me, everything that I've done specifically in the last decade or so was really, uh, allowed me to focus on the greater good because that was a part of the mission of each of those nonprofits. Now, that being said, I still believe whether you're building a for-profit or nonprofit that I find great joy in the personal and professional development of the people that I work with and recognizing that my part of my role as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as a visionary, whatever you want to call it, is making sure that I'm taking these people that are in of inside of my care or my responsibility during the time that they're with me and ushering them to new levels, teaching them, mentoring them, um, spending time with them, developing them, creating opportunities for them, for them to grow in the things that they're passionate about, um, creating opportunities for them to leave this job, a better, more established worker, more established person than anyone else. And if I can use that as an opportunity to, to encourage them to think, about other people to think about how what they do makes an effect or impact on the world. That's just a positive element. Um, but that's kind of the way I look at a lot of the things I do and what drives me. Um, now that doesn't mean that, you know, that profit's a bad thing. Um, I think profit's a great thing. Part of the reason we launched this new for-profit business was that it was time to do that again. Um, but regardless of what you know, legal format you're building an organization in. My uh, my goal is to build every organization the same, to run it as a business, to run it excellently, to surround myself with good people that I can learn from, that I can support and serve, and that we're making a difference in the in the um, in the overall community. So, one of the things I like to explore, and you've kind of touched on it, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. While this is not a therapy session, I'm just really curious. You know, the question is the why behind what you do. And you mentioned in college, you made this decision to pursue the nonprofit route. You know, what was it? Was it something from your childhood or something you experienced in college? That why behind you decided to go down that route, obviously with the opportunity cost and everything else. So what's the why driving it? Um, I think the, the why is sort of just, you know, coming back to you know, the golden rule, if you will, which is, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and recognizing the fact that 
um, that, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not ancient in age, but I've, but I've, you know, I've lived a few years and I just see, um, evidence of, uh, of how this sort of mentality plays out to benefit everybody. And, and as I mentioned, you know, I, I had some, I had some situations early on in my career that could have, should have made me an exorbitant amount of money. And for a slew of different reasons, it didn't. And I think it just changed the way I viewed business and the way I viewed success and the way I viewed um, a goal setting. Now, that doesn't mean, I mean, we, we've still exited a few companies. We've still seen some success, which is great, but it just meant it just meant that wasn't what the driving force was. The driving force is about impact. The driving force is about people. Um, and some of that, I think, you know, I have a pretty strong faith. So some of that comes from my faith perspective. But but I think, you know, regardless of what faith you have or don't have, or, you know, whether you're, you know, Jewish or Christian or Baha'i or whatever it may be, that there is a consistent across all of those, uh, all of those religions, which is do well to others, right? Um, be good. Um, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, all of those different kind of approaches. Um, and I think that's really the why behind it, you know, and, and now, as you know, Roger, with kids, you want to create an environment and a legacy that shows your kids that you want them to be not just what you say they should be, but, but who you are as well. And so I think that's a, that's a key portion of kind of why I do what I do. And I, and I think too, you know, in the whole scheme of things, we don't live that long. And so, um, uh, you know, some of the most influential, um, wealthy people in all of this region, um, you know, some of whom I know and, and know of in 50 years, most people won't remember who they are. And so when you really start to think about, well, what's the impact of my life? What's the difference that I can make? What can I do that is bigger than me? It has to be more than getting my name on the side of buildings and, um, you know, leaving an endowment for this or that, but it has to be about your investing in the next generation or future generations, because then and only then can you really impact, um, by teaching people, uh, you know, uh, morals uh, teaching people character, people teaching people integrity. And so when you look at it from a, from a longer term perspective, it really helps drive the day-to-day -day why behind it is what you do. So I couldn't agree more, especially regarding the golden rule. It's so simple yet so powerful. So switching gears a little bit regarding your new project, you know, one of the questions that you kind of brought up briefly is regarding privacy. And can you share some of the challenges you've experienced either while working with the city of Dallas or perhaps some of your new projects around you know, privacy and some of the data that gets collected through some of these endeavors. Sure. And, and I, th I what I will say, and I really give credit to my, uh, my business partner and the executive director of the, of the Dallas Innovation Alliance, Jen, Jennifer Sanders. Um, she took a very proactive approach to citizen engagement and, and what she did, and we still do this, and this is five years later, we still have monthly meetups um, and committees that that citizens in the community are allowed to participate on and lead to help determine um, and address some of those concerns, you know, and, and I, and I don't want to be um, big brother about this, but, but to this point, you know, I think there is data that needs to be collected as a part of the process. I don't think it's personally identifiable. And I think depending on your generation, your level of comfort 
with the amount of data that's being collected um, changes. Um, but I feel like what, what really has to happen um, in that in that data you know collection process is that there needs to be open dialogue and communication. And by creating a citizen an approach for and strategy around citizen engagement, you can have those conversations with the citizens to say this is actually the information that we're collecting. So, for example, one of our projects was we had a pedestrian tracking um, sensor, a couple of them inside of this uh, living lab that tracked where people were when they were there. Well, yeah, it would hit your cell phone. It knew where you were um, and it gave you a unique ID, but it didn't, it didn't know who you were. It didn't know any information about you. Well, what did we do with that information? You, you say, why do you need to know where and when people are there? Well, we took that data. Um, we gave it to the bars and restaurants in the neighborhood and they were able to go out and create specials to create happy hours, to create afternoon snack periods, to create weekend stuff that would um, that would help them market their products, um, their restaurants into the community. And what we saw as a result was a was double digit increase in revenue year over year. Well, that's what we were using that data for. And if you go to somebody and say, "Look, we want to we're, we're collecting your data so we know where you are," so it helps us as it relates to making you aware of the uh, am- amenities and the restaurants and bars in the, in the in the in the neighborhood. People are like, "Okay, that's fine." Or we're tracking that information so we know where where, where there's activity or less activity as it relates to public safety movements and where we're going to put our police forces and um, activity. Oh, that's okay. Well, if you say to them, uh, we want to know where you are so we can track your, uh, you know, your, your online web traffic and every text and email you send, then that's a problem. Um, and that's not what cities are trying to do. But, but, but to answer your question, I think that proactive communication process is one that is really, really helpful for, um, the dialogue that begins between citizen and city or municipality, and one that I believe and we've seen um, really plays out to be something that that a lot of the concerns are are addressed and deferred and and um, and defrayed a little bit over time. You know, I really think that's an excellent move on your behalf because what I've seen and experienced, and you know, you and I have been around the tech industry for the past ten years at least, and it's always when citizens or consumers find out afterwards what the companies or organizations have been doing with their data. So taking that proactive upfront approach on your behalf or, you know, Jen's behalf, I think it's a phenomenal way to operate. What kind of feedback do you get from the community when you have these meetings or town halls? Well, it's really positive. Uh, Excuse me. They are, uh, you know, a lot of them have questions. A lot of people come in with a, a bee in their bonnet, if you will, and pretty fired up about, you know, really inf- misinformation. Um, a, lot, a lot of it is lack of knowledge. A lot of it is, um, you know, fake news. A lot of it is things that they think they know. And then as you, you know, knowledge is power. And as you're able to communicate with somebody and share the things that are actually happening and why they're happening, and invite them to participate in coming up with better solutions and, and addressing certain um, perspectives and, and, and point of reference, that's, that's positive. Um, and together, I think you begin to not only make the citizen feel heard, feel appreciated, feel valued, but also feel a part of the solution. 
right? And as you listen and you understand the things that, that are important to them, you can devise a solution that's that's fair and reasonable. And in the end, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be happy. Um, it doesn't mean that um, you know the data collection is going to be is going to go away. In fact, my argument is that data collection is the best best possible form of innovation and advancement because the more we know, the more we can make decisions around. Right? We're informed not just based on a hunch, a thought, a guess, but rather um, real empirical data that tells you how to make people's lives better, how to you know improve quality of life, how to improve service um, uh, assessment or delivery, or simply something as simple as you know how do we make it more efficient for people to park in downtown? Right? You, you look at downtown, especially our downtown, and people think, "Oh my gosh, there's no parking in downtown Dallas." Well, if you look at the data, there's unbelievable amount of open open parking spaces in downtown but the problem is we don't know where it is so if we tie that knowledge um to the um to the reality and make that available to the consumer then it becomes powerful gosh i actually now can look on my app and see exactly where the open spaces are exactly what they cost so i can determine and I can pick which one I want to go to, and I can get there more efficiently and more effectively, which helps our environmental sensor, which tests is tracking CO2 emissions to go down because I'm not having to drive in circles to find a parking space. My road rage, my road rage is, is declining because I was able to drive directly somewhere and make my meeting, which I was 10 minutes behind before when I started, and not be 30 minutes to a meeting because I can't find a parking space. So there's all these things. It's really about taking the complicated aspects of infrastructure, technology, data, logistics, and paring them down and presenting them to a citizen or community in a way that's palatable, in a way that's supportive, in a way that's effective, in a way that improves their life in a way um, that they can realize it. So now that you have this experience with City of Dallas, how are you experiencing other municipalities and cities from a receptiveness standpoint? Well, I think it's still early, right? I still think cities don't and municipalities don't know what to do um, because I think they're being pitched smart cities in the wrong way. I think a lot of a lot of cities are being educated as to what smart cities is by the vendors. Somebody says, well, let me tell you what a lighting system can do for you, A, B, C, and D. Oh, by the way, we sell a lighting system. Why don't you come? buy it from us. Once again, I don't think it's wrong to pitch a city your services, but when they're when they're being educated by technology providers, infrastructure providers, they're they're skeptical. Versus um, the, our approach which is let's let's not talk about technology infrastructure, let's talk about your civic problems you're facing. <clears throat> Transportation issues, public health issues, public safety issues. Um, other sort of mobility issues, uh, food deserts, um, name it, right? You've got all these things. And then you start to say, look, let's address those, each of those problems or opportunities with solutions. And let's make sure those solutions are long-term, um, make sure that those solutions are sustainable, make sure those solutions are relevant, i.e. you're not putting a piece of technology in the ground that by the time it goes in, it's irrelevant because another technology has been driven. And there's a lot of ways to do that. So <clears throat> so to this point, I think cities have been educated um, in a way that is not most effective for them. I do believe, 
um, and am seeing that they 100% realize that they have to do something because of the age, aging architecture, arch, arch their infrastructure that we're dealing with in these cities and the influx of population, um, they're going to have to deal with this problem. It is not an if, it's a, it, it's a win. And I think that is creating an opportunity for them to really go back to the drawing boards and learn. And so that's why we share uh, case studies. Um, that's why we share the data that we've done in Dallas and the things that we've seen in the actual return um, that we've seen on our investment that we put in there. But it's also why we're showing them what's going on in other parts of the world. Uh, Asia and Europe are way further ahead from us because they're a lot older and they had to deal with this problem earlier than we did. But but what we're seeing is a desire for cities to learn. And my favorite part of any emerging market is that be, an emerging market nobody really understands. So people are willing to be way more collaborative and share information to make everybody more effective. It's not till we really think we have a grasp on a technology or on a, on a market opportunity or niche that we start to think about data and information is proprietary and that we aren't going to share it, which I think is a huge inhibitor to growth and innovation. Um, but that's what we're seeing is, is as we talk to these other cities is they're really trying to figure out um, how to do this. They're trying to figure out what the best way is for them to participate and invest in it. And most importantly, they're trying to figure out um, s uh, sustainable financial models that allow them to do this in a way that creates long-term benefit for their organizations. So it sounds like a very exciting time for InnoCity Partners. Magic Wand, what does InnoCity Partners look like in five years? Um, so that's a, that's a good question. You know, I think for me, InnoCity Partners five years from now, it continues to, continues to evolve um, and deliver um, the solutions and the strategic consulting that's relevant at that time. You know, one of the one of the products we're going to be rolling out um, early on here is an educational platform that is educating cities as to what smart cities is and what sorts of things you need to do and focus and how you can educate yourself as to what's being what's going on out there and how it's happening and how does it grow. Um, in five years, I don't think we're having an educational one hundred and one platform around smart cities. I think it's more about how are you leveraging your smart city to become more effective. What are ways that you're constantly enhancing your your you know your effectiveness and your overall capacity what data sets are being used how are those data sets being used what are other cities learning from the combination of lighting data with water data with um, video data in a given uh, neighborhood and so i think that's probably what um what inno city partners will be doing five years from now beautiful vision trey so Trey, to round out the show, the question I'd like to ask is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? And you can't use the golden rule. Okay. Um, uh, my advice, and I've said this, but, but then I'll give a couple points. One is um, find out what you're passionate about, find out what you're good at, and go do that, right? One of the great things about um, the way we raise people today versus when, when we were kids was when we were kids, it was... Find out what your strengths are. Find out what your weaknesses are so you can work on your weaknesses um, and, and make those strengths. The reality is that does not happen, right? Weaknesses are weaknesses for a reason. We're not good at them. And so what we're telling people today is, look, 
you find your strengths and you find and you find your weaknesses and you focus on your strengths and find somebody else who can come in and help on the weaknesses, right? They can offer that that different um, approach. And so I'm a huge believer in that. I'm a huge believer in building teams um, that are smarter and better than you are. Um, recognizing that that as a good entrepreneur, your your best skill set is putting is being a coach that puts the best team on the field at any given point. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I always tell uh, growing businesses is, if you are the best at more than one thing in your company, you've hired poorly. Um, but if you're the best at not one thing in your company, you've hired brilliantly. And that's the way you really need to look at it is what is the most effective way for you to create impact, for you to grow your business, for you to return shareholder value, whatever, whatever world that you're in. Um, and, don't, and, and look at this is that true leadership and true vision is about not elevating yourself, not thinking that something can't be done without you, not putting undue, um, uh, constraint on yourself to make something work, to will it into being, but rather being strategic, um, being thoughtful, um, being intentional around building an organization that can thrive. So I think that that's probably what my advice would be. I try to share that with entrepreneurs in it anytime I can, you know, fail fast is a good one, but more important than anything is um, as entrepreneurs, we have, two, we have an opportunity to learn in one of two ways. We can learn from our own mistakes and there will be many of our own mistakes, right? Or we can learn from the mistakes of others. And so by surrounding yourself with a good group of people that have been there and done that, call it mentors, call it coaches, call it advisory board members or boards of directors, they will save you immeasurable, immeasurable time. Um, money, and most likely um, success um, if, you, if you pay attention to them. And so it's, it's this mixture of uh, humility, confidence, and vulnerability that is really going to help differentiate entrepreneurs that succeed from entrepreneurs that fail. Well, Trey, I really appreciate that advice and your time today. And I look forward to catching up with InnoCity Partners again in a few years and seeing where you are. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Raj. Thank you, Trey.